I like roadmaps. Uh, I like uh, books of maps, I like atlases, I like big roadmaps that you carefully unfold and then carefully fold back up again. Uh, I like those ones. I like Google Maps uh, so that you can see all kinds of places around the world of maps that you don't own in a book. Uh, At the school that I went to, we would get a school diary each year and inside the front cover was a big road map of Australia. The first thing that I would do when I'd get my diary each year was to trace with a yellow highlighter every major road that I had ever been along to every village, town and city. I like road maps. My last birthday in May, I got a new book of maps, an Explore Australia book of maps. You see, because I like to uh, trace not only where I have been, but also to imagine places that I might go into the future, where I'm going to go on my next big camping road trip, places that I'd like to see. Around Australia and some other places overseas, I'm familiar with these locations, Familiar with some locations because they're the tourist highlights. I've been to the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Uh, I've been to the Eiffel Tower. Haven't been up it. I've been to some of the tourist highlights and I'm familiar with them. But there's other places in the world, in little corners of country New South Wales, in tiny little rivers with amazing rapids on them in Europe. There's little places that are kind of off the beaten track that I've been to and I'm familiar with too because... Well, I've been there. They're special to me. They contain memories for me. The place where I grew up going on family holidays every summer, most people have never, ever heard of it. But when I was growing up, it was the Gold Coast for me. I'm very, very familiar with some of those places. But when I look out at road maps, there are many, many places that I've got no idea about that I've never been to, that I've never met someone from there, that I've never heard of before. And I wonder if you've ever experienced where you might be familiar with that town and that village, but not familiar with the road in between. For the 17 years I lived in Sydney, I drove up and down the Pacific Highway from Grafton to Sydney and Sydney to Grafton in every uni holiday and work holiday, visiting my family and being at uni... I've tried to add up the number of times I've been up there. It's well over a hundred. Yet there's so many bits of the journey that I know nothing about. I I know the road, of course, but I know nothing about what's off to the side of the road on that side and side of the road of that side. But I know every town and where they are along the way. Yesterday I was on my way to uh, footy uh, to coach the under-8s and we were playing in Holt and I left home and started driving in the wrong direction um, thinking I was going to a different footy ground and ended up driving around the back of uh, Conan and worked out that two roads connect up only about 500 metres apart and I never knew they connected up before. New things in the distance but not in between. Now the Bible is like a road map. 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The Bible is like a road map where there's all kinds of towns along the route. And we'll be familiar with some of them. For us, there'll be parts of the Bible that are like tourist highlights. We've been there, we've seen it, or we've heard about it from other people. 
there'll be other parts of the Bible that we're familiar with because it's special to us. It's a passage that's a favourite of ours. It's spoken to us at a particularly memorable or significant time in life. But for all of us, there'll be many parts and connections that we don't really know. Over these next 10 weeks in our Bible build-up series, we're going to build up our knowledge of the Bible. Week by week, we're going to build up the true story of God, the world and us. Sometimes we're going to be sweeping over it in a kind of big Google Earth uh, kind of view. And this is where you'll find the timeline in the middle of the sermon outline booklet helpful for locating where we are in the, in, in the world of the Bible at any one particular time. But every now and then we're going to zoom in to the street view. We're going to get down on the ground and in the details and see what's going on. And as we build it up uh, week by week, I'm hoping and praying... That with the more that we know, we'll get more and more excited about reading the Bible for ourselves and understand better and be more confident of our place in God's wonderful story. Now, as we've already said a couple of times, the best place to start is in the beginning. So keep your Bibles open at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to start at page 1. The very start of the Bible, the very start of the true story and we are immediately introduced to the main character. In the beginning, God. If you run your eye down the page, you'll see that God is mentioned in almost every sentence in this first chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God, 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 God. This is unmistakably the true story of God. And what's God doing? Verse 1, in the beginning God created. God is creating. He creates the heavens. He creates the earth. And then we get verse by verse by verse of God creating everything that is in the heaven and the earth. Now, from the first introduction to God, imagine that you'd never heard anything about God before. This is the first time you're hearing about God. This is the first time you're introduced. From this very first introduction, you can't help but notice that God is not a localized deity. God is not a pocket idol that you'll sit on a cardboard shrine somewhere. God does not belong to an obscure religion that will be tucked away somewhere. This is God of the universe, the heavens and the earth. This is God of everything and everyone. This is everyone's God. From within the first few words of the Bible, this is who God is. And when God speaks, stuff happens. There's a repeated action line. Uh, And God said, verse 3, if we trace it down, and it was so. Uh, Genesis 
chapters 1 and 2 are written in quite a structured way so that we see patterns. It's kind of written a bit like poetry, uh, where, there's, where there's a pattern to it, there's a, there's a rhythm to it, and depending on which um, uh, uh, edited version of the Bible you're using, the way the words are laid out on the page, yours might be indented or outdented uh, to help you see uh, some of the patterns are there. And one of the patterns that is there is, and God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. When God speaks, stuff happens. Now, if God is able to speak the universe into existence with a word, matter, atoms come together and are formed with a breath of God's voice, life begins, do you wonder just a little bit how we should relate to this God? He's, he's before us. In the beginning was just God. He is before us and He's infinitely more powerful than us and He's good. Do you wonder just a little bit about how we should relate to this God? Before us, infinitely more powerful than us and good. This is another pattern that we see in God's creative work. It was good. It was good. Verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, 18, 21, 25. You can see them there. It was good. This is an, an assessment of all creation from God's perspective. This is what God thinks. God thought up the universe. God designed it. God planned it. And God made it to be good. He likes what he sees. It pleases him. It turns out exactly the way that he wants it to. From the cockroaches through to the waves. From sedimentary rocks through to mosquitoes and pigs and humans. It is good. It's fit for purpose. Now I want to tell you a little bit about my craft projects. Uh, I'm not very good at craft uh, and being in and around ministry and uh, uh, loving doing children's and youth ministry, always find myself doing bits and pieces of craft. The engineering bit of me is very good at dreaming up crafts and I like designing different crafts but the execution bit of handling paint and scissors and hot glue guns is where it all falls apart. When I was in ministry at Epping, we used to run a winter holiday club and you'd be put in a group for the whole week where you'd do your games and activities and your Bible time and your craft. And the kids that would turn up on the first day and see that they were in my group would go, oh, because they knew their crafts wouldn't work. Uh, the only way my crafts do turn out is usually if I kind of dream it up and start it and then Naomi comes and bails me out. Uh, the embarrassing bit about it is one of my sisters is a school teacher and the other one's training as a preschool teacher and then there's me. Well, this week I've had to do my big Bible, uh, the big Bible box made out of a, yes, an Ikea box uh, that was a recent purchase for one of the boys. Uh, it, I think, went to plan. 
uh, the, the, the paint went on in the right places, the sticky tape went on in the right places, uh, the Velcro dots went on in the right places and it even balanced uh, so that it didn't fall over, although our house stinks like spray paint fumes. And uh, in here, might next week, when you see what we've got planned. It went to plan. It, from my perspective, it's good. Well, at least all right. When God looks at what he has made, he says it is good. Everything. Everything that you and I see that's good comes from God. Everything that you and I experience in the world that is good, it comes from God. Whether we recognise God or not, here looking at the true story of God, the world and ourselves, you can see clearly that everything that it is good, everything that we experience that is good, comes from God. When we get to verse 31... There's a change in the pattern. It was good, it was good. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. The change comes here when God has made the man and the woman, when God has made humanity, when God has finished his creation, it was very good. The key element in God's masterpiece uh, the ultimate brushstroke is the man and the woman. It is very good. There is no celebration of God's creation without this last part, without the last piece, without humanity. Because this is the part that God has made that is different to everything else that he has made. With all the diversity that there is in the world of, of things that, that, that are hard, to things that move and flow, to things that have life, to all the different colours, to all the different movements, out of all that diversity, the thing that is most different is the man and the woman. They are made to reflect God. We're told to bear His image in the likeness of God. And that they have this different place in the world, not, and I need to stop saying they, as we're looking back into Genesis, it's, it's, it's us. It's every man, it's every woman, it's every person that has ever been conceived and, and come to life. We see that we have a special relationship with God compared to everything else in creation. Here we see that humans are spoken to by God and are given commands, not in a negative way as if God is to say, well, out of everything that I have made, I'm going to keep my thumb over to you. No, God is inviting the people that he has made who bear his likeness to have a special relationship with him that he speaks to them and he gives them his good instructions for living in his world and living under his rule. We see in chapter 1 verse 28, chapter 1 verse 28, that God blesses them and God says to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. God commands them to the earth, to be fruitful, to almost like God, be creative in reproducing. And in the second half of verse 28, 
They're to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. They are to be like God in ruling over, not by saying, well, this is mine and I'm going to keep it under my thumb, but inviting a relationship of love and care and protection and providence of blessing. In the special relationship between us and God, we're given the command to be fruitful and increase and to be like God in ruling over creation in loving care and blessing. This is a picture of paradise. I googled pictures of paradise and the first hundred pictures that came up had water, sandy beaches and palm trees. This, Genesis 1, is paradise. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and love and blessing. Now sometimes when I trace road maps out in my atlases or the big road maps or even on Google Maps... Or when I drive along roads that I've been down before, I'm aware of sad memories. Aware of places where sad things have happened. As I drive up and down the highway between Sydney and Brisbane, some of those crosses on the side of the road are for my friends. People that I went to school with. Outside the school where I went to kindergarten, there is a, was a tree with a plaque on it for a boy that was hit by a truck who jumped over the fence to get a soccer ball while we were at school and got hit by a truck. As I drive up and down the road, as I look at road maps, I, can, I know of towns where people are in trouble, where farms are in drought. I know of towns that are overcome by drug addiction and crime. I've, I've travelled through towns where at five o'clock bars go across all the windows for the night. I know of villages that are broken by family rivalries. Houses that are not as happy on the inside as they appear to be on the outside. If you're following the church Facebook page this week and I, and, I, and I shared an email about domestic violence, so often out of sight to us, but domestic violence and abuse going on, homes where people do not have a life that celebrates it is good. Each of us know places along the road map and each of us experience it ourselves, of things that are not good. The creation story in Genesis ends with these words in chapter 2, verse 25. Chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is not the world we experience. We experience a world that is broken. We experience a world that has shame in it. We feel shame. 
We are surrounded by other people who feel shame. And one of the most popular TED talks uh, that you can look up on the internet is one about shame and vulnerability. Shame is a deep, deep feeling in us that is more than embarrassment. Sometimes we're made to feel shame when we shouldn't. Sometimes we should feel shame when we don't. We feel shame. Social media thrives on shaming. You'll find articles on body shaming and food shaming and fashion shaming and mummy shaming. Brené Brown is a scholar, researcher, author in the area of social work and her particular interest is shame and vulnerability and courage. And in one of her TED Talks, she says this, Shame is the most powerful master emotion. It's the fear that we're not good enough. Is she right? Think about your shame. How does it make you feel? When I was in year 11, we did a school musical, as we did every second year, and I was always in the pit band, uh, the bit that was kind of underground and out of, out of, out of sight. Uh, nobody would let me on stage, um, but they'd let me play, play the music. And it was tradition for our school, when we did a performance near the end of our season, when we did a performance for our own school that we would add in some extra jokes. We would swap some lines around. Maybe one character would say somebody else's lines. We would have a little bit of fun with it. Now, down in the pit band, we decided, well, really, I decided, uh, that we were going to play a joke on, 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 on uh, one of my friends who was on stage acting. Uh, it was in an African scene. And he, in this scene, he was going to burst uh, into the scene and he was, to play, he was to dance and he was to play these bongo drums and he had to say a line, something like, I'm going to dance and play these bongo drums till the day I die. Something like that. Now we had the idea that we might get a shifter and loosen all the nuts and bolts in the bongo drum and its stand. So when he burst onto the stage, he said, I'm going to dance and play these bongo drums till the day I die. The whole thing collapsed, exploded, the skins fell off, nuts and bolts went across the floor and everywhere, and the crowd laughed their heads off. My mate ran off stage. The scene couldn't go on. It wasn't funny. I felt horrible. I felt like I wanted to hide. I was glad I was in the pit band, but I never, ever wanted to come out of there again. I felt shame. It, it changed the relationship between me and my mate. It changed the relationships between the guys who were in on the joke that just seemed so funny at the time but went so horribly wrong. I felt what Brene Brown talks about, the most powerful master of emotion, the fear that I was no longer good enough to be his mate. Is that how shame makes you feel? Now the world 
that God made was a place that was free from shame. It was a world and a relationship with people and amongst relationship that had no shame. But that's not how it is now. Now as we build up the true story of the Bible over the coming weeks, we are going to be led to Jesus. Jesus is the only person since the garden who has lived without shame. When Jesus arrives in the world uh, and grows up into a man, God announces his presence with these words. He says, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. As Jesus uh, uh, um, uh, is in the world, when he is tempted, uh, which we read about in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted, he does not give in. And as Jesus begins his ministry, he starts to invite shameful people to follow after him on a journey that will lead him to the cross. And it's at the cross where Jesus deals with shame. Through the cross, it is that God restores his creation to a wonderful paradise. It's through the cross, through the death and resurrection of Jesus where God starts to bring in a new creation of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing again, having no shame. Adam and Eve had a relationship with God and one another that was free from shame. It was a relationship that was perfectly open to God, a relationship that was perfectly open to one another. It was warm. There was this secure acceptance there was nothing to hide from, nothing to be ashamed of. No tension or strain in the relationship. Nothing that was uncertain. Next week, we're going to see where that shame and uncertainty and tension and conflict comes from. But as we keep going along in the journey through these 10 weeks, what we want to see together is that Jesus creates a new world and a new community for us that is free of shame. Now here at New Life, one of the slogans that we have is confident in grace. Confident in grace, bold in prayer, ready for making Jesus known. But confident in grace expresses the relationship that we can have with God that is possible because of Jesus. Because of God's grace to us in Jesus, we can be confidently accepted by God. And that can extend to one another. Because of God's grace to us in Jesus, because we know that warm, open acceptance, we can warmly accept and be open with one another in appropriate ways but there need not be barrier to our relationship. My hope and prayer that is as we build up this true story of God, the world and us, that we'll come to grips more and more with this grace. That we might know a life without shame before God and before one another.